The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. So the scene starts with a, a man standing in the middle of a highway. And he's surrounded by cars, but each one of them has been destroyed. And we're not sure exactly why yet, but this man is is starting to walk down this highway and it continues to reveal the desolation around it. And we are told the reason for all this is because the war that ended all wars has happened. And this is what's left of earth after what took place. And yet this man has a mission. He's holding on to something and he's trying to bring it safely to a new destination. Pretty quickly after that scene, the movie uh, turns and and it focuses on these scavengers that we realize are pawns of the antagonist. And this person is asking them to scavenge the land for supplies, but more importantly, a book a book in which he says to them has power. Power that he wants so he can manipulate and control people. Now, the book that I'm talking about is called the book of Eli. And the, and the main character, Eli, is holding on to the book he's looking for. And that's the Bible. And whether you've seen the movie or not, I think it portrays a truth that we've seen throughout history that there are people whose desire it is to bring this book's hopes to light and to protect it and care for it and, and to make sure those truths ring clear. But there are others who want this book for another reason. They want it to use to gain personal glory to be able to gain power and control over people. And that is devastating and sad. And I I bring that up today because we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that has been abused and weaponized in human history. And, And before I dive into it and hopefully reveal what I believe Peter, the author of this passage, is really trying to express, I I just... I felt the need today to talk with some people, to talk to um, the hurts of some people. Over the last few months, I've, I've had the opportunity to speak with many different people who have very painful church stories. And this book that was meant to give them hope and restoration has actually been weaponized against them. And I just want to say, if you're in this space today and you've seen someone take what it was meant to be hopeful and turn it against you, I'm sorry. I am so sorry that you've had to be on the receiving end of that burden. That was not what this message was supposed to be. It's not what these words are supposed to do. And I hope that I can stand in the gap for you. Whether or not you get to receive 
the apology from them. I really hope you do, but if you don't, I am sorry. I'm sorry that this has not been hopeful, but hurtful. And I just want to take a moment to pray. First and foremost, to pray for the the reality of the sin of the church, because God calls us in his word to repent for those things. And ultimately, I also want to pray for the restoration that I believe can take place in your life and for the lives of these people who have been walking through this. Because nothing on this earth can overpower the beauty of this book and the hope in which it holds on to we just need to be healed from the wounds in which people have given to us because of it. And so I just want to pray um, over us in this moment. Um, Lord, I just, Lord, my heart has just been so heavy for this. I, I, I know as I've looked back on history and, and just the reality of, of conversations, so many people have experienced the negative aspects of people in charge of this book or holding on to this book. God, that's not you. They didn't represent you. They didn't um, speak on your behalf, but the ways in which they held the book made it seem like it. So Lord, I just pray that you would forgive us and forgive our negative actions, our horrific actions for it. And Lord, I just think about the people in this space right now, whether it's online, in this room, outside, that have experienced this pain. Lord, your word says in Matthew that you draw near to the hurting. And so I pray that you would start to draw near to them in ways in which they can experience your mercy and your covering. Lord, I think oftentimes we want to be rocket-shipped rocket out of, of our circumstances, but what I know true as we observe in your word is that you parachute in. and You walk with us in the pain and the hurts, and, and you heal us and bring hope to us and restoration to us through it. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would be parachuting into their lives. And, Lord, as we turn to your words today, I pray that they would be healing and hopeful and that we would see how you are above our circumstances. And so God, we love you. We give you thanks for who you are. In your name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. And uh, we've been in this series entitled New. And, and this entire series is based about, like, what are the new things that have come to us because of Jesus? And, and Peter has done an elegant job so far of expressing some of the beauty of Jesus' life and, and the impact that it should have on us. And so we're, we're, we're coming to now this, what does that mean? And so we're, we're kind of jumping back into that, what does that mean now, um, section. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Peter chapters 2. We're going to be starting at verse 18. And it says this, Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing inside of God. For to this you have been called because of Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he, reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body of the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, by his wounds, we have been healed. For we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. In, a, in verse 18, we read the word servant in this ESV, but depending on the translation you might have or you've read, you've read the word slave. And the reason for that is because there are two Greek words that describe people in this type of a circumstance. And, and when you looked at these two words, there's very little difference between the two. The word that we translate to slave is focused, or it would simply be translated to someone who is owned by a master. The word that we would translate to bond servant or that we get bond servant from is the one who serves an owner. Very similar, but the distinction is enough to, to hopefully reveal a little bit of an honor. Because one talks about the ownership, one talks about an action. And so Peter here is using the word bondservant. And so in, in many ways, he's trying to bring a little bit of honor to the person who's receiving this news. Because of, he's addressing not only them, because he's addressing them directly. Um, and, and it's easy for us as modern readers of, of, of God's word to look at situations like this or read passages of scripture like the one I just read and get uncomfortable. Like, I'll be the first one to say, like, sometimes you read those things and you just go, um, wait, what? That's in there? Or if they're gonna talk about hard and difficult things or evil, destructive, man-made systems, then it should look differently, right? Like, it should be about condemning such a situation or condemning such an action or talking about social reform of it. And before we are too quick to place judgment and maybe want to write off this passage and move on to the next, I just want to take us a pause for a moment and just to think, try to be mindful rather of what the biblical author's purpose was. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie uh, Goodwill Hunting, um, but for those of you who just need to be reminded or haven't seen it, it's about this, this genius kid named Will. Right? He's a savant, he's beyond smart. But he's had every card dealt in his life gone bad, right? Like he's got a terrible circumstances, terrible situation. And so he's not really able to been able to use his skills or giftings because he hasn't been able to present the opportunity. Where there's this scene where Will, as a janitor at MIT, and he's like, you know, cleaning the floors of this hallway and he comes across a chalkboard. And on the chalkboard, there is a math problem written out on it. And Will stops and looks at it and starts to calculate it and grabs the chalk and starts to work out the answer to the problem. The teacher 
from the distance sees a janitor with a piece of chalk on his whiteboard. Or sorry, chalkboard. They didn't have whiteboards then. On his chalkboard. And starts to yell at him, right? He's yelling at him. Why? Because from his point of view, someone in his circumstances doesn't have the authority, right, knowledge, or experience to answer his problem. Right? And so he expresses his judgment loudly towards Will. Like, what are you doing? Because in his mind, the only thing Will can accomplish is more pain to, or, or more devastation to the problem because he's erasing it. He's marking it up. He's, he's graffitiing it, whatever you want to say. But this causes Will to drop the chalk and to scurry off. As you expect, if someone was yelling at me, I'd probably run too. But as the teacher and his colleagues start to approach, start to go after Will, the colleague stops and sees that the whiteboard had been answered, or the chalkboard had been answered. And he stops the teacher and says, hold on a second. And in that moment, the reality came clear to that main teacher, that Will was actually addressing and answering the problem. He just placed too quick of a judgment upon him. And I often do that when I read God's word. And my guess is that many of us have done that too. Because we have allowed our experiences, our circumstances, our way of thinking to to influence what the biblical writers were trying to or not accomplish. And then we've in, in return missed out on what they were speaking. See, the, the biblical writers weren't focusing on social reform. That wasn't their purpose. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't see a couple of times in scripture social reform take place, but it's very minimal because that wasn't the purpose of their writing. See, the purpose of their writing was to reveal our sin and our rebellion to a merciful, just God. And how that merciful, just, and loving God responds to sin by creating his, by sending his son into our world to walk our life, to experience what we'd experienced and to do it perfectly and then choose to give up his life for us. And then the purpose of the biblical writers was to say, how do we respond because of it? And so it's easy to look at this passage and quickly go, oh, Peter must be, Um, like allowing this to continue. No, not at all. Because Peter isn't addressing the owner. He's addressing the, the servant, the person in the situation. And he's speaking to them about how they should respond to the gospel. And the way that I think about it is this, is if, uh, let's say that I went to a, a San Francisco Giants game versus the LA Dodgers. I'm a San Francisco Giants fan, and don't you ever call me a Dodger fan, right? They're evil. I'm just... Sorry for those of you who like it. I really am sorry. Um, but let's just say for a moment, I'm sitting in the stands. And as a baseball fan, I watch the Dodgers make an amazing baseball play, right? And then I look across the stadium and not a single Dodger fan is cheering for what just took place, right? It's as if what had happened on the field has not impacted their life or impacted their response. And so I stand up to them and say, 
Um, did you not see that? That was amazing. As a baseball fan, I recognize that you should cheer for that. No, I'm just spe- specifically just speaking their action. So no way here is Peter condoning this evil practice by expressing how they should respond to people. And I don't think in any way, shape, or form is he even belittling the reality in which they have experienced because he he knows the hardship they're faced. And he's very aware of their system. Even though it looks different than ours, it still wasn't good. And yet he still addresses them. Because here's why. See, Peter's trying to help them to see something that is super important that I believe is still true to this day. And that is this, it's the first point on, on, on your, thing, on your uh, handout, is that our hope cannot be found in a system or in the way in which people treat us. I think, oh, didn't, sweet. Our hope can't be found in, in, in a system or in the way people treat us. Because oftentimes it does. I mean, let's just think about it for a moment. If you were to look back about your life this week and think about the realities in which you respond to people or, or to the systems you're in, did something happen in which your life, your happiness, your joy, if you're younger, your vibe change? Right? Maybe a coworker got the job that you were more qualified for. So how'd you respond? Or maybe your spouse didn't respond in which the way you hoped they would respond to the way that you helped them and your mood radically changed because of it. Or your kids or your teachers or the government. See, so many of us are have our lives radically influenced by people and systems and they can control our behavior. And that is when you give someone true power. True power over you is when they dictate your life no matter what you're facing. But you still hold power when what they do to you doesn't influence your behavior. And so what Peter is trying to get these people to understand and to see is that hope isn't going to ever be found in their circumstances. And it is painful and devastating. But Peter's also writing under Nero. And and Pastor Michael did a great job explaining this last week. But Nero was an evil dude who did horrific things to Christians. And yet... He's still, so he understands what it means to be under horrific systems and understands what it means to be treated wrongly. And, and he even kind of hints at the reasons why, right? Because the, the, the very next verse, he says that in, in being mindful of God, so as I look towards Jesus, right? He says that, um, um, in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing that when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it and endured? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Like what, what Peter is starting to hint at here is something that we all understand to be true. Most of the time, people will respond to you the way in which you behave, right? Like if you're treating people nicely in the grocery store, what's usually the response back? Whether they're a jerk or not, maybe even a little bit of a smile, right? But if you're being mean and aggressive towards them, what's their response? Aggression in return. And all that's simply doing is just bringing glory to you, right? Because you're only getting credit for what you are doing. And, And that's just something that all humans do. That's just the reality of life. And so when he starts to say, when we, in light of Jesus, don't respond to people or to the systems in which they should, yeah, it's going to become across as suffering. And the concept of Christians and suffering as a society is one of the most debated things in, human, in, in Scripture, one of the many debated things. Like, why do believers suffer? And there, this is something we could spend a long time addressing, and I don't want to get so sidetracked on what I believe this passage is saying, so I'll just simply say this. The reason I believe that suffering still takes place is, one, it's sometimes not in our control, right? We can't control the way people respond to us. But the reality is suffering reveals our character. Suffering reveals what's truly happening in us. We can all fake it when life is good. And I promise you, you've seen people fake it when life is good. But who you really are, what you really hope in, where your passions are, where your things start to be blossom is when they are attacked or when you're under pressure. Because when you are under pressure, truth will be revealed. So the question I want to ask this morning is is this first is, as you look about your life and the things that have happened, because we've had plenty of things, big things happen in our world in the last month, and I'm guessing that everyone on an individual has some things happen in their world. And how did you respond because of it? How did you respond to those circumstances, to the ways you were treated or or way a system didn't align with what you were hoping or thinking or believing? How did you respond? Was it negatively? Was it frustrated? Was it to, to numb yourself, to try to do these things? Or was it to respond in the ways in which Christ responded? Because Peter continues by saying point two is that our hope is observed in Christ's example. That it's not found in the systems and the way people treat us. It's found in in the way Christ lived his life. It's interesting in this this verse, uh, in verse 21, it says, for to this you have been called because of Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example. Now, this word example, I am not gonna be able to say in the right, uh, in in Greek well, so bear with me. I think it's called hyperphone, hypogran, hypogram. Once again, don't know how to say well. But I can explain what it means. 
It's something that every one of us has experienced on some level, from a little kid even as a, growing through adults, because what it simply is, it's a learning device, it's a learning tool. That when you circle something over and over and over and over and over again, that you've practiced it so many times that when it's not there, you can recreate it. I have a, I have a seven-year-old daughter who's just entering into second grade. Um, she did this a lot last year in first grade, right? They would send a piece of paper to her with the letter A on it a bunch of different times, right? It started off very thick, and then the A got a little bit lighter. Then it became dotted. And then it was like, now your turn, right? As she was practicing this over and over and over and over again, it allowed her to begin to create it on her own. And so what Peter is saying here is that our response, our ways to find hope comes from when we circle Jesus's life over and over and over and over and over so that we would then be able to respond the same way he does, the same way he does. So what does that mean? Does that mean I'm supposed to go in his perfection as he continued on to say, right? He says, like, um, in verse 22, like, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He reviled and not reviled and returned. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting him who judges justly. The answer is no, you can't be perfect. <gasps> Shocker. If you all were concerned about that or thought you were, um, you should take a better look at the mirror. Uh, <clears throat> No, like we can't be perfect. But what Peter is highlighting here is this, is that if anyone had the opportunity to demand a response, it was Jesus. Because he was perfect. He was the son of God. He did no wrong. He didn't deserve anything. So he, if anyone else, should have been able to respond to the injustice but he chose not to. He says instead that he chooses to entrust himself to him who judges justly. And rather, he continued to trust God for who he was. Now, when Peter wrote these words, I can't help to think that he was not clearly thinking about a situ situation with him and, and Jesus. Is in, in um, Mark chapter 14. And so just to give a little context here, Jesus, this is the, the night that Jesus was betrayed. For those who don't know what that means is that Jesus had 12 disciples with him in his ministry for, for three years. And, and during this time, he would teach them, explain things to them. They did all this amazing stuff together. They were like best friends. And on this night, he sits at a table with his, with his closest of friends and, and says, I'm about to die for you. I'm, I've now come to fulfill the promise in which I was created, the reason I was created, the reason I'm here. And in that conversation, the person who was going to bring him to the people to kill him gets up off the table and goes and finds the Roman soldiers. And so after this meal and after that person's left, he comes with the rest of his 11 to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says this in, in Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 13. 
So he says to them, sit here for while I pray. And then he took with him Peter, James, and John. Peter, one of the people, the person that we're reading his words from, was brought a little bit closer in Jesus' greatest time of trouble and trial. And he hears Jesus, and he, Jesus says to him, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass for him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup for me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The only way that these words are recorded in here is that Jesus was close enough to them for him to hear it. And let's think about the prayers that which he is saying. He says, I'm facing something I don't want to go through. Other versions of the gospel express that he's literally dripping blood because of the angst in which this is taking place. And he still chooses to say, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew that even in the trial, even in the pain, even in the circumstances that he was facing, God had a bigger and better plan. And so Peter is saying to him, saying to us, will you observe the way Jesus lived so you can see where he found hope? Hope it wasn't in his circumstances. Hope wasn't in the, the way people treated him. Hope was in his father, was in, in God. And so he does. He allows himself to be captured. And, and I don't think we think about this often because in John's gospel, um, it, we read that when, when the Roman soldiers approach Jesus and they ask, are you Jesus of, of Nazareth, his response is, I am, and they all fall over to the ground. I mean, imagine that for a moment, that his words had a power to literally drop a platoon to the ground. Do you really think their chains held Jesus back? No, not at all. Those things were not holding him back. He was choosing to withhold his self because it was the Father's will, because it was the Father's plan, because he was doing it for us. Because that's what Peter continues to say, right? He says that he himself bore our sins in the body of his tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness, for by his wounds we have been healed. That's what he, he's simply saying, that Jesus choosing to walk in obedience allows us the freedom that which God promised would come. Because the perfect person, the son of God that scripture calls the lamb of God, chose to give up his life for our behalf, to take our sin, our shame on the cross so that we could be healed from the powers of this world and from the power of darkness over our life. That's what Jesus did. And he did it in obedience to his father. And that is why thirdly, we can see that our hope is then secured in our shepherd. 
Because Jesus didn't just die on the cross, he rose from the grave. Now, all of this would be maddening, things that we shouldn't do if Jesus did not rise from the grave. Because this is so counterculture. And the reason it's so counterculture because if the culture had something that which we can hope for that would bring us true satisfaction, we would have already found it. Right? You would have already found it. It would have been found in your job, in your relationships, in the things that you're experiencing in this world, but it's not there. So hope has to be somewhere else. See, hope is in a person. And his name is Jesus. And the way that we know in which he was alive from the grave is that he chose to reveal himself to 500 people. It's kind of hard to get 500 people to lie. But even more than that, he chose to go against the culture and reveal himself to women first, which they didn't have a testimony back then. And and he brings honor to the reality of saying like, I am here, I bring value to people, and this is the first person I revealed myself to. But know what's also amazing about this? That our our sin, our shame, our, our, our hurts, our burdens have been forgiven, but Jesus also is never gonna lead us into something that he himself hasn't experienced. I think we often forget that. I think oftentimes when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, we think that he says, do what I say, but not as I do. Right? Like his life was perfect. But the point of a shepherd, for the, yeah, we don't live in a, in a farming society, so we don't understand this, but shepherds never left their sheep. They didn't just go, all right, peace, go down this mountain. No, he, he continued to walk alongside them and, and graciously and sometimes harshly bring them back the line. But he was walking with them. And Jesus has experienced everything that we can experience and still chose to trust. Man, if, if you're walking through the hardship of maybe, um, maybe the loss of a loved one, Jesus knows what that's like. We don't know exactly when, but Jesus grew up with, without a father because he's after, at a very young age, we stopped reading about him. All indications that he passed away. So he knows what the pain is to have someone who he loved dearly be missing. He still chose to trust God. Have you ever felt like you've been in a season of dryness where you're like longing for everything, like everything's going against you. You just feel like you're in a desert. When Jesus started his ministry, it says that he was baptized in the Jordan River and then the Holy Spirit led him into a desert where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was in a wilderness, hungry, tired, weary, thirsty, longing for hope. And he still chose to trust God. If you ever felt, know what it feels like to, to have a colleague or a friend or a community give you praise and cheer just for a few days later or months later to, to, in essence, speak bad about you, but nothing has changed in your life, Jesus knows what it's like because he entered in to Jerusalem with triumphant sounds, with people putting palm trees on the desert or on the ground, and they were decrying his name just to yell, crucify the next week. And yet he still chose to trust God. 
See, our hope is secured in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the one who's leading by example. He is not asking of you something that he himself hasn't done already. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, is where is our hope? Where's our hope? Is it in the, the systems that are over us, in the ways people treat us, or is it in the life of Jesus? The author and the creator of us. And so I'm gonna invite the band up and, and as they come, I just wanna take a moment for those of you in the audience just to really ponder this. But if you're in this room and have never accepted Jesus as Lord, would you consider that today? In light of your shame, your burdens, your hurts, your pains, and, and the reality that you have not been shepherded well, will you choose to allow the shepherd the one who is really going to lead you and not abandon you and protect you to cover you. And so if that's something that is stirring in your heart right now, we would love to have a conversation. And, and so there's a tent outside that we would, uh, we just wanna invite you to, to take a step towards that to us so we could just have a conversation with you and just simply talk about this decision that you're wrestling with or thinking about. Because it is something that we are supposed to help one another do. It's not something we just do on our own. And so if, if Jesus is not your Lord and you feel like you're called to do that today, come talk to us. I also wanna say if maybe you have gone astray or been one of the sheep that have kind of wandered off and, and are looking to other things for hope and, and you are wrestling with some things and wanna have a conversation, we'd love to have that too because Jesus is the one in which your hope is found. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you this, this morning with um, gratitude in our hearts that you are the creator of, of heaven and earth and that you are the hope provider. Lord, I pray that as we sit in this room and maybe are thinking through the, the things in our world and where our hope is that if we are needing it, where you would gently correct us to the right path. That you would help us see that our actions and, and that we would recognize how we should act in light of what you've done. That our hope would be placed in you and not the way people treat us. And so Lord, we give you thanks that you are a merciful and gracious God. And as we declare these, these words this, this evening about our belief, that it would bring glory to your name. So God, we love you and give you thanks for who you are. And we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.